Section 78. A tour of ye old museum of office past. What'll Mac products be like 10 years from now? This much I know. Word will have still more icon bars. David Pogue, Macworld Magazine, February 1984. Welcome to Ye Old Museum of Office Past. This section is one of the more deeply product-focused sections of hardcore software. I hope to make it fun. In this section, I will go through the history and evolution of the Office user interface. While there are many innovative user interface styles and approaches across the industry, what we developed in Office by virtue of the breadth of usage and position of influence was viewed by many as a standard to be followed. Many readers have experienced the innovations discussed here. By stepping through over 20 years of user interface designs for Microsoft's word processing applications, we can see the dedication to solving problems. We can also see the creeping introduction of bloat. How did we get to Office 2003 with the menu bar, toolbars, context menus, keyboard shortcuts, task panes, dialog boxes, width tabs, widgets, buttons, and pop-up commands? We got here by solving customer problems. We got here by making the product easier to use. We got here by listening to the market. And we got here by winning reviews. It was that simple. Or was it? It is easy to see what happens in hindsight. We added new features, one after another. To make features easier to discover and use, we added additional user interface. Layer after layer, or solution after solution, we built up an array of user interface elements that when looked at in totality, created bloat. But it is just so easy to say that in hindsight. One simple observation, was that to win in the market when Microsoft started making applications, we had to win reviews. These reviews meant everything in a world with many competitors, retail distribution, and little word of mouth, and no internet. Reviews were a giant checklist of features. For example, Software Digest compiled yearly reviews of all products in market. The 1984-85 edition of their 200-page book on just word processors had a four-page fold-out checklist of 50 features and a dozen abstract criteria. Fail any of those, and your overall score sank. A losing score meant no ability to advertise winning, no recommendations from salespeople. And then the next release and review, you started in a hole. So for a decade, we made sure to always have the features. There was no choice other than to win reviews, and we did. When should we have stopped and taken a first principles approach? When would the upside have exceeded the potential downside? When would the market and reviews have tolerated a big change? What if the market rejected a solution we tried? We would have reverted to the old way and delayed addressing bloat for how long, another decade? It drove me bonkers when people who thought bloat was obviously caused by too many features. It drove me bronkers when those who should know better would so quickly conclude that we were making things worse by just winning reviews. There's no easy answer to asking when the right time is to make a wholesale change to a product. Anyone in product development saying it is obvious hasn't really lived through the risk of making a bad choice or is simply applying hindsight. Innovators' dilemma and disruption make it seem so easy to identify and act at the right moment. They also make it easy to make fun of the leaders who are terrified. I mean literally shaking scared to make a dramatic change to a product. No one ever gets fired right away for not making a big change. 
Many people get fired right away for making a big change at the wrong time. And the worst part? So many big changes are eventually proven correct over time. In the case of Evolving Office, we were going so fast cranking out releases that no one stopped to ask anything big. Customers were buying our product as fast as we could press new CD-ROMs, so to speak. We were writing reviews. Our biggest competitor was ourselves. We were so ubiquitous that we were punchlines on everything from David Letterman to Saturday Night Live to Dilbert. Then suddenly, we were boring, bloated, and not particularly interesting. So much so that a buggy, poorly implemented, sort of a clone, became a symbol of everything we had apparently done wrong. The world seemed to be saying that Star Office was good enough. Ugh. Our sales, however, were not dented even in the slightest. But could they be? We did lose that one deal in one city in Germany. But Star Office was a German company, so maybe that wasn't so bad. Then there was a medium-sized U.S. government agency loss. When do you panic when something like this has happened? There's no playbook. Hemingway wrote in The Sun Also Rises, How did you go bankrupt? Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said. Gradually and then suddenly. We became bloated gradually, and then suddenly it was too much. The product was collapsing under its own weight. It was time to revisit from first principles everything we'd done and ask why, and to come up with a better approach, a wholesale reinvention. In this online version, there's an article from David Pogue talking about Star Office. The aim of this section is to briefly cover the history of those innovations that got us here so that when we have the necessary context in the next sections on the design of Office 12. When it came to telling the story of Office 12, his story, once he showed it to customers, Jensen Harris, email Jensen H, dubbed this his tour of ye old museum of office past. Please join us on this tour. The online version has Jensen's first slide from a presentation he did many times that I also used in college recruiting, welcoming us to the tour. Comparing a typical command in office from the time it was introduced to a release decades later is a great lesson in the compounding complexity of products. Making text bold debuted in Microsoft Word 1.0 for MS-DOS in 1983. Text was made bold simply by selecting the text. Actually, it wasn't simple at all since few had a mouse, but I digress. You'd hit the escape key, the letter F for format, the letter C for character, and finally the letter B for bold. For those with the fancy monitor, which not everyone had at the time, the text became bold on the screen. Choices at each step were limited to approximately five. The online version has a screenshot of Word 1.0 for MS-DOS. Commands also had keyboard shortcuts from before the mouse as an affordance for touch typists. Early keyboard shortcuts were simple, like using the insert key to copy text from the scrap or clipboard. WordPerfect and other early MS-DOS apps devised schemes that were nearly impossible to memorize. Most people had some sort of cheat sheet nearby or a keyboard overlay to help remind them of keyboard sequences. Lotus123 had a highly structured command architecture known as slash commands, as navigating the character-based menus began by striking the forward slash key, for example, to open a file, slash WFR, for hitting the slash key, the worksheet menu, the file menu, the retrieve command. 
Competitively, the two behemoths in productivity software of this era, WordPerfect and Lotus, arguably clung to their keyboard methods while the industry shifted to the graphical interface, even maintaining compatibility with those keystrokes during the rise of the mouse and keyboard standardization of menus. The online version has a photograph of a WordPerfect keyboard template. Macintosh, with menus and a mouse, and later with Windows as well, aimed to simplify all this. In Microsoft's Word 1.0 for Macintosh, text was selected with a mouse and bold was chosen from the character menu, very much like what Apple did with MacWrite 1.0, their word processor. MacWrite had about 35 menu commands in total. Menus were mostly a direct mapping of features to product code. The whole product could be described by showing screenshots of all the menus in a two-page magazine spread as Popular Computing did in 1984 when Macintosh was launched. The online version features this two-page magazine spread. Over time, more and more formatting options were added. Subscript, superscript, underline, different fonts, colors, and so on. Excel was even more complicated because it supported formatting cells as dates or currencies, plus single underline, double underlining, accounting underline, and more. This was great. We listened to customers, observed what they were trying to do in the real world, took advantage of new hardware such as laser printers, inkjet printers, fancy screens, and we were adding features like MAD. Soon, though, the menus got too long for even the formatting commands. Microsoft's early Macintosh application introduced dialog boxes, which were windows that popped up and showed all the formatting options when you selected them from a menu. This was inconvenient for routine formats, so menus also had a mixture of common formats like bold and italic, and then a menu item that brought up the complicated dialog box. This was the start of hide-and-seek with features. The online version has a screenshot of chart 1.0 showing the dialog box. Excel realized these challenges about the same time that the new product Microsoft Publisher did and created toolbars. There's a history of debate over toolbars. What is considered a toolbar? Which team or even which company invented them? Many on the Excel team were hardcore about their version of the story. Toolbars were used for common commands like bold and italic, as well as print, save, and copy and paste. In 1990, the front of the Excel 3.0 box and advertising displayed a giant toolbar with buttons for bold and italic because these toolbars were such a big deal. Eventually, toolbars were so popular, everybody wanted their favorite commands on them. So we created even more toolbars and made it easier to rearrange the buttons and to hide and show different toolbars. The online version contains an advertisement for Excel showing the box and the big toolbar. Under development, at the same time as Excel 3.0 was Word for Windows 1.0, Microsoft's first word processor for Windows. I'm omitting the venerable Microsoft Write included with Windows from the earliest days, which by the standards of MacWrite was every bit a word processor. Word for Windows also had toolbars, two of them in fact, and a graphical ribbon, which was the defining interface element in word processors, owing to the skeuomorphic interpretation of the margin scale of a selectric typewriter. Word 1.0 fit on a screen 30% smaller than today's HD television. The online version has a screenshot of Word 1.0. Word 2.0, released in 1991, nearly doubled the number of buttons on toolbars, but maintained the same layout and screen dimensions. While each iteration showed substantial gains, 
The transition from Word 1.0 to 2.0 marked a move from character to paragraph and document level operations in the main user interface. There are now buttons for inserting tables, columns, charts, graphics, and shapes. The addition of inserting charts, for example, represented the rise of office-wide technology connecting the applications, which was strategically important even if not every customer used the features. Each of these represented more than single attributes on a character. For example, adding a numbered list encompassed indenting the paragraph, an automatic number, hanging indent for multiple lines, and spacing after the list. These steps could have been executed manually, but getting them right each time was error-prone, assuming one could get it right the first time at all. As each of these features were more complex, Word introduced dialog boxes that had buttons on them to summon further dialog boxes, or nested dialogs. This really led to a creation of, where was that at, within the user interface. Designers and program managers worked enormously hard to position choices and options within these nested dialogs. But no user maintained this level of conceptual knowledge of the product. What was the problem we were solving? There was literally nowhere to put all the new features. Menus and toolbars were constrained by working on screen resolutions typified by 15-inch CRT monitors or first-generation laptops. The online version has a screenshot of Word 2.0. By Word 6.0, the race was really on. The version numbers skipped from 2.0 to align with the ongoing MS-DOS version of Word, which accelerated its version number to align with the market share leader, WordPerfect. Yes, that's how the competitive industry worked. Word 6.0 was a breakthrough product, even more so when brought together with Excel 5 and PowerPoint 4 as Windows Office. In 1994, we released Office 4 and built on it from there. At that time, Office 4 was a monster of a product as no company had competitive products in all the major categories. And within the categories, each Office application was at least tied with the nearest competitor. Office 4 was the last release entirely designed for individuals as the product was quickly becoming a standard business purchase. That said, from a design perspective, the relative heft was obvious. Word 6 added six additional toolbars and a host of new user interface affordances to access commands, while also increasing the baseline screen size by 25%. Word and Excel and PowerPoint added right-click contextual menus, tooltips, tab dialog boxes, a refinement of nested dialogs, toolbars in the bottom of the screen, wizards, and more. What was already a difficult to master set of commands accessible by a single action, point and click, became acts of hunting and discovery. Tooltips, helpful text explaining what a graphical toolbar button did, popped up when the mouse was hovered over a button. Some toolbars only appeared when invoking certain features, and they didn't even always go away. Right-click context menus are worthy of some historic context. Paul Allen, email Paul A, obviously, Microsoft's co-founder, was a huge fan of the right-click, drawing on his inspiration from the original Xerox Smalltalk mouse when he created the first Microsoft mouse with two buttons. Steve Jobs rejected two buttons in favor of a simpler Macintosh mouse with one button, and for years bemoaned the use of the secret control click added to Office applications to simulate the right-click. Windows had not entirely caught up to the use of right-click, right but with Office 4, apps added right-click with abandon. 
With right-click, relevant commands for a character, a selection, a picture, or even a whole paragraph appeared by right-clicking the selected object. The laudable goal of these commands that by carefully curating the user interface, the right-click commands would be available and there would be no need to cruise around the product to figure out what might work. The menus were called context menus for this reason, taking advantage of the context within the application. The feature was marketed heavily, so it was no surprise that sometimes we snuck commands in these context menus that were important strategically, though not always the most likely to be used. The online version has a photograph of my original Paul Allen designed Microsoft mouse featuring the two green buttons, and it's called the green-eyed monster. We had our early usage telemetry for Word 6 that came from a specially coded version along with some data collection via floppy disk I previously described. I vividly recall the data coming back about context menus because they were used so much, and I shared that with Paul A., who was still active on the board. It was quite a vindication of the two buttons. The more fascinating data point was that for typical commands such as copy and paste, the usage of the menu, toolbar, and keyboard shortcut, and now the context menu, were split roughly evenly, while a given user did not exclusively stick to one affordance. We learned early on that adding secondary and tertiary affordances to commands was a convenience picked up by a set of users, not a replacement for the old ways. Importantly, and reviews showed this, technical users heavily bought into this notion that user interface should be available multiple ways for maximal efficiency. While we curated and designed the context menus, it was no surprise that the same technical users also wanted to customize context menus because they, are, they had their own idea of what make, might make sense. The popularity of context menus put pressure to add even more commands over time, eventually obscuring the user's content or forcing awkward positioning of, of the context menu on small screens. The online version has a screenshot of Word 6 context menus. It was always the case that menu items that were not applicable at a given time were disabled or grayed out, it's called. As commands and buttons began to encompass higher level abstractions, disabled commands started to become a mystery. Why couldn't I insert a table inside of a table? Why didn't bold work on a chart? And so on. This proved even more frustrating to hide and seek. These grayed out commands always seemed to be needed just when they didn't work. People had no idea why a command was grayed out. Even today, searches for word menu item grayed out have hundreds of millions of results. Recall that the design of Word 95, technically Word 7.0 for Windows 95, required we not change the file formats. This significantly constrained what features could be done since most formatting and document commands would result in a file format change. Word 95 innovations then were mostly focused on IntelliSense, features that just worked with little if any user interface. We previously discussed background spelling and autocorrect as examples of these features. While the product did not gain bloat by way of pixels, the sense of product mastery was reduced. IntelliSense features introduced us all to what just happened when using the product. Typing a few dashes across the screen and pressing return yielded a nice, clean, horizontal line. And pressing backspace was a clever way to undo that, so long as that was the next key you pressed. This loss of control, or as we now know, an inability to fully master the product, 
came about by the introduction of features specifically designed to be useful without having to learn a command. Hundreds of hours went into designing interactions, such as how to begin and end a bulleted list. Use an asterisk or a hyphen at the start of a paragraph, type a space, some text, and then a second return to end the list, and you had great bullets. Even with a dedicated effort, we could not be right 100% of the time. We began to consider the hypothesis that automatic features might need to be so perfect that they worked 100% of the time. And if we guessed wrong just one time out of 100, then to the user, the feature was always wrong. Think about this in the context of today's iPhone autocorrect. There's a screenshot of Word 95 in the online version. Word 97 was the first release using shared code across all of Office for deep architectural features. One of those features discussed earlier was command bars, our first shared code for this critical user interface affordance. Availability of, command, of shared code and ample time to develop new features led to an explosion of the command surface area in the product. Thanks to 32-bit computing in Windows 95, the base screen resolution expanded to 1024 by 768, called XGA, three times bigger than our original target for Word 1.0. An explosion in user, user interface correlated to the product being labeled a winner, a juggernaut, and completely overwhelming in the market. It, but it was not bloatware just yet. Just by toolbar count, the product was twice as big as as it was before, lump, jumping 18 toolbars, and each one had more buttons because of the screen size. For completeness, the list of new user interface widgets included toolbars on every side of the screen and floating, a menu bar that can be docked on any side of the screen or also floating, drag and drop of any command anywhere, hierarchical and multi-level menus and context menus, icons on the menus and context menus, those preceding items all came as part of the new shared code. There was also the office assistant, clip it, green squiggle grammar checking, and even more IntelliSense, including on-the-fly spell correction, along with more wizards and more multifunction commands on toolbars. IntelliSense in Office 97 was as much a point of view as it was code in the product. Some of what was designed as IntelliSense was trying to do the right thing with the user interface elements that routinely appeared so we would try to anticipate needing some functionality and pop up the user interface. Often this puzzled the user and they would quickly move it out of the way or try to close it. The obvious addition was a checkbox, never show this to me again. The significant problem with this option is figuring out when to show that user interface in the future. If we guessed and showed it again, we were ignoring the user choice. Absent that, the chances of users finding where to uncheck the box they just checked were slim. The chance of even knowing that it was required was probably zero. In other words, whatever we popped up was effectively gone forever. This type of intelligence in the design proved to be incredibly frustrating. I'd offer a tip for readers that are designing products. A checkbox offering to never show something again is always a bad idea. GDPR inclusive. Showing it in the first place was the problem. Word 97 was both our last release aimed squarely at the retail consumer and technology enthusiast, and our first release with an eye towards the volume purchasing big business customer. It was also the last release that was done without thinking deeply 
about the impact of complexity on these corporate customers. In hindsight, it was probably right to look at this release as the start of an overwhelming office, but only because customers and reviewers would soon be pointing out that Office 97 was bloatware. At the same time, by today's standards, the set of features and capabilities were not all that overwhelming, just ahead of the curve for most people. For example, PowerPoint added photos, drawings, graphics capabilities, which also appeared in Excel and Chart and Word. It was entirely clear these are representative of mainstream scenarios today. Hearing early concerns of complexity and bloat from our new enterprise customers deploying Office 97, we looked to a cosmetic and graphic design approach to reducing bloat. Along with the enterprise features we set in Office 2000, we employed the use of a doctrine of make it simple by hiding it. We used our command bar infrastructure to implement the personalized menus, where commands were hidden by default in both menus and toolbars. This was detailed in Chapter 8, Alleviating Bloatware First Attempt. The feature proved a failure and would be an important part of informing our design for Office 12. There is a screenshot for Word 2000 in the online version. In another visual trick, use the space made available by hiding toolbar buttons by default to place two main toolbars adjacent to each other rather than one on top of another, calling this rafting. The contextual toolbars introduced in Office 97 described above were further tuned so they would hide and show a bit better automatically in hopes of returning some control to the user. I'd offer another tip for readers that are designing products. Invisible and hidden commands are in no way at all simpler or more streamlined, though they are frustrating. A design change that was long the standard on Macintosh was one that the Windows team encouraged us to change to and in our apps, and that's to have one distinct window for every open document, with each window showing up on the Windows taskbar at the bottom of the screen. Previously, only the application showed up on the taskbar, and multiple documents for the same application were available as separate windows only through the application's window menu. This was deemed complicated and not consistent with the direction of Windows itself. The result, especially for Outlook, was a ballooning in the number of windows showing up on the taskbar, each with ever-decreasing amount of text showing the title as they were so cramped together. In other words, a change meant to make things easier turned out to scale particularly poorly when applied to real-world usage. By the time we shipped, Word 2000 had added five toolbars in Office 2000. Office 2002, also known as Office XP, aimed to vector some efforts back to delivering end-user features. With the failure of the Office Assistant, Clippy's retirement was due at the time we shipped, we introduced two features aimed at offering ease of use surface areas in the product. In hindsight, both were poor choices, one of which continues today, even after being removed from Office 12. The first was a relatively minor change, which made to make our new internet-connected help system available all the time with a simple type your question here box at the top of every screen on the same level as menus. This rather innocuous addition set a precedent of cluttering the menu bar with additional commands. The awkwardness of the affordance as a place to type questions made it a particularly poor choice. Typing in the menu bar is just weird. 
The task pane described in, in chapter nine allowed us to greatly expand the surface area of the user interface. The design choice was rooted in the rise of the web. Unlike menus and toolbars, which are concise word length command descriptions, the web evolved with sentences describing the steps, such as, after selecting your dates of travel, click here for the next best fares. Many on the design team favored moving Office to a more descriptive user interface as a way of reducing complexity and explaining the actions in context, like the web. The task pane started as an experiment for a few key long-standing problems. The new document task pane finally gave us more room for the user to choose from a list of previously opened files, document templates, and more. The reveal formatting task pane was an advanced feature long favored by technical users, which showed all the formatting applied to a given selection of text, historically a feature used to compete with WordPerfect. The task pane would prove to be a frustrating experience for customers especially on small screens where it took over a good chunk of the side of the screen. It's worth noting that laptops had started to switch to a widescreen format called 16 by 9 aspect ratio. Screens remained about the same height, but were wider to accommodate a standardized HD and full HD resolution being used for DVD and video. Theoretically, the wider screens would offer more space for user interface arranged vertically. Tech enthusiasts became enamored with the idea of stacking the Windows taskbar on the side for this very reason. Feedback, however, was mixed. At the very least, a large portion of our enterprise customers were still using standard 4 by 3 aspect ratio screens. In total, Word 2002 created eight new task panes and added another seven toolbars, bringing the total number of toolbars to 30. Task panes were a key part of marketing Office XP, exceeded only by Clippy's retirement. There is a screenshot of Word 2002 in the online version. Office 2003, described in the last chapter, was characterized by heft. We delivered more new programs than in any prior release, plus servers and services, the entire Microsoft Office system. The expansion of the user interface continued as well. The task pane from Office XP proved an extremely popular addition. We believe that the continued standardization of wide screens would show that using the task pane for user interface was a good use of that extra width. We added 11, yes 11, new task panes, bringing the total number of task panes to 19. The task panes received a technology improvement, adding support for more user interface elements and, and a richer display within the task pane. The task panes themselves were essentially mini websites within the product. We didn't stop there. We added a second window aligned on the side for showing online help, which would cause a jarring realignment of the whole application shifting everything to the left just to make a little bit more room for that new window. The online version contains screenshots of Word 2003 as we shipped and also a real world example of Word 2003. With Office 2003, we reached a point that was envisioned in David Pogue's 1994 column, Word 15, due to ship in 2004, give or take. The online version contains a graphic from that article showing a screen with a zillion buttons and a tiny little area for you to actually type your own text. Two more escape valves in the design of Office proved to be the source of bloat as well. Even as they serve to solve problems for our own designs and customers, customization and program settings are options. 
In the early days of products, we added the ability to customize most of the choices we made. End users or system administrators could move commands to customize the product for their unique use. Over the years, we continued to improve the ability to customize. By Office 2003, we had the capability of placing any command anywhere, along with the ability to create as many toolbars and menus as desired. This customization was embraced by those creating custom programs running within Office applications using Visual Basic. Many tech enthusiasts took great pride in perfecting a toolbar for themselves or their business. One customer I visited, a big consumer products company in the Midwest, spent months planning the rollout of Office such that there were specialized arrangements of the menus and toolbars depending on an employee's job function. A lawyer, marketer, salesperson, or finance person saw different customizations. This might have seemed nifty, but it also meant the company needed to rewrite the documentation and help for the product, leaving employees with existing product knowledge or those who were using how-to books completely lost. We invested significantly in making it even easier to customize the product, believing that if more people could customize the user interface, maybe it would be easier, not harder. We really needed to stop digging. The online version shows some of the user interface for customizing command bars. No discussion of bloat would be complete without mentioning tools options, the settings for an application. These settings would increase every release. A setting is most often a choice where somewhere in the code that we made in, in designing a feature, but for some reason we anticipated that customers would make a different choice. Some choices might be preferences or user information, such as default fonts or initials used in marking document revisions, for example. Others were often obscure compatibility choices, such as the most famous of all, operating as though 1900 is a leap year or not. This is an option because the first versions of Multiplan and Excel, Microsoft's products, and Lotus 1.2.3 incorrectly coded 1900 as a leap year. Not to nitpick, but Lotus was incorrect, and Multiplan and Excel maintained the error for compatibility with the industry leader 1.2.3. Tools Options was also a place to cover the sins of indecision among our program managers. When Excel pioneered the wheel on the mouse in Excel 97, between Word and Excel, we could not agree on whether the wheel was meant for zooming or scrolling. To compensate for our own inability to agree, we added a checkbox to change the default. The Tools Options dialog, much like the control panel in Windows or system settings in Macintosh, is often the first stop for reviewers or techies. Parenthetical, it shouldn't be. With over 200 choices, there was plenty to keep an eye on. The presence of choices is empowering. At some point, however, empowerment turns into bloat. We had reached that point. The online version has the complete set of dialog boxes for tools options in Word 2002. Sure, choices were overwhelming, and people were finding them, finding them were even, was even more difficult. But we were also speaking an entirely different language than customers, one they weren't interested in learning. They had, to work, they had work to do. They knew what they wanted when they saw it, but describing what they wanted or even spending time exploring the product was time wasted. We used to joke that if we did a usability test to English speakers using the German version of Office and asked them to do something complicated, they were no more efficient in their native language simply because the words on the menus weren't words at all and might as well be German words. What is mail merge or pivot table? 
During the design of Office 12, we conducted many usability tests where we asked subjects to pick where a command should go in the existing menu structure, or to arrange related commands in the same place. Some of our menus had become almost dumping grounds for common commands that didn't obviously fit somewhere. The problem with such a design is that if we don't know where a command should go, how in the world would a normal person guess where it is? Or even if they got lucky once, would they remember it next time? The online version has a usability movie where a usability volunteer is trying to figure out where the sort command is within the application. Returning to how we became bloated, it was two ways, first slowly, then quickly. I hope to make the case that at each generation of Office, we were considered in where those features went. The thousands of hours we spent deliberating the names, entry points, and visualizations for every new feature were symbolic of our commitment to getting this right. We were proud of each of the default user interface experiences of our products. Screenshots were our currency, and we were always happy to see new screenshots in the press. One thing we noticed, however, was that even with all we added and improved, the ability for customers and the press to identify the new product versus the old from screenshots was rather limited. The product was so overwhelming, most people could not tell the difference. We had a design language consisting of a lot of stuff on the screen, but to most people, it looked like a bunch of buttons and computer stuff surrounding their work. An analogy we often used was key to understanding a way forward for us. From crime and police dramas, most are familiar with the role of the sketch artist, the detective who takes a verbal description of a subject and turns it into a drawing that is used on the streets by police. It is difficult to describe another person as most of us lack a vocabulary for facial features necessary to reconstruct a face. That is why creating such sketches is highly an expert art. Over the years, the use of software to show options to a witness has become standard for constructing a sketch. People do a much better job describing something from examples than they do from a blank sheet. Office needed the equivalent of a library of choices rather than an overwhelming vocabulary of features they did not understand. But how would we accomplish that? 